just finished a study in the book of Jonah. Jonah is among that group of prophetic books at the end of the Old Testament we call the minor prophets. Minor, not because they're less important, but because they have less content. They're smaller. Daniel is part of a group of books that we refer to as the major prophets. They include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And although Daniel is shorter than the others, it contains the most comprehensive and sweeping revelation recorded by any prophet in the Old Testament. In fact, Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. And we will have to keep the book of Revelation open as we understand the prophetic portions of Daniel because they coincide. But don't assume, as I say that, that Daniel is therefore pie in the sky by and by. That it has no application to your life today because Daniel is intensely practical. And that is always the purpose of prophecy. Prophecy is not given just to satisfy our curiosity. Prophecy is given in order to impact our present lives. In 2 Peter chapter 3, after telling us that this world will be destroyed by intense heat, Peter makes this application in verse 11. He says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since you know this is coming in the future, it ought to impact you today. That's the purpose of prophecy. And that's one of the purposes we will discover as we see this book of Daniel unfold. Now, the book of Daniel has two parts. Chapters 1 to 6 tell us about the prophet. Chapters 7 to 12 tell us about the prophecy. The first half is about the man. The last half is about the message. And what we will learn from Daniel, the man, is how to be faithful to God in a pagan country. How to stand for God in a hostile environment. And each one of us needs to understand that because we live in a nation that is more and more growing to be a pagan nation. We will learn from Daniel's message that the kingdoms of this world are passing away and the kingdom of heaven is coming to pass. Daniel tells us about a period in time the Bible refers to as the time of the Gentiles. That's the time when the Gentiles trample underfoot the city of Jerusalem. And that time began at the captivity when Israel was taken out of the land into Babylon. And that time will end when Jesus Christ comes back and gives the land back to his people. And we will discover that we are living in the very last days of the times of the Gentiles. Now, no other book in Scripture has probably been attacked like the book of Daniel has. Those who criticize Scripture really criticize two main parts of Scripture most. And those two parts are miracles and prophecy. And the reason for the attack on those two particular areas are that you can't explain those two areas except for the fact that there is a God. And they criticize these two areas of Scripture because they want to get God out of the way so that they can live their life without any accountability to Him. And that's one of the reasons Daniel is so much under attack because Daniel talks about just those two areas, miracles like the lion's den and the fiery furnace and prophecy. For instance, Daniel tells us what the next four world empires that will subdue Israel are after his time. Babylon, 
Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Daniel, in fact, predicts the coming of Alexander the Great 250 years before he came. And so the critics have to do something with Daniel. And what they typically do is they say that Daniel is not a book that was written by a 6th century Jewish prophet predicting the future, but rather it was written by a 2nd century fraud pawning himself off to be Daniel. Now what do we say to the critics? Well, it's really simple. You can't take Daniel out of the Word of God because it's connected to the rest of Scripture without throwing all of Scripture out. For instance, Daniel had a contemporary prophet in his time by the name of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a 6th century prophet. He was a neighbor of Daniel's. Here's what he said in Ezekiel 14, 13, and 14. He said, if a country sins against God, God will bring judgment, even if they have Noah and Daniel and Job. There's a man living in the 6th century. What is he doing? He's pointing to Daniel, his contemporary. In Ezekiel chapter 28 and verse 3, God is speaking to the prince of Tyre, and he says, are you wiser than Daniel? Daniel is confirmed by Ezekiel. Daniel is also confirmed by the Lord Jesus. In Matthew 24, 15, Jesus refers to him as Daniel the prophet, and he goes on in that one chapter to quote Daniel's book three times. Paul confirms the validity of Daniel in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2. He asks this question, Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Now, how did he expect them to know that? Well, it's written in Daniel 7, 22. The writer of Hebrews confirmed the validity of Daniel. In chapter 11 and verse 33, he writes of the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Now, which prophet by faith shut the mouths of lions? It was Daniel. And so here we have Scripture confirming the validity of Daniel. So if you're going to take Daniel and pull it out, you have to be consistent because Scripture is inseparable and throw it all out. In fact, just from logic, it doesn't make sense that a second century writer would want to forge a book and want to attest that it was written by someone who we don't know anything about unless the book of Daniel had already been written. If he was going to make up a forgery, you would think he would pick somebody like Elijah or somebody like maybe Jeremiah who had written another book. But he writes about Daniel, and if it weren't for the book of Daniel, Daniel would be a nobody. I'm not sure you understand that, but I do, and it's great stuff. Now, having said all that, let's get into the book. The first two verses kind of give us some background. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Now, there are two places mentioned in verse 1, Judah and Babylon. After Solomon, the kingdom was split in two. There was the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had ten tribes. The southern kingdom had two tribes. The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel. The southern kingdom was referred to as Judah. Now, Judah had 19 kings over nearly 350 years. Eight were good, 11 were bad. The northern kingdom never had a good king. 
That's one of the reasons why they were the first to be taken into captivity, and that's one of the reasons why they never returned. The setting for Daniel takes place in the southern kingdom, in Judah, 117 years after the northern kingdom has been taken into captivity. Judah, of course, is a place where Jerusalem was, where the seat of God's throne was, where true worship took place. Now, interestingly, in contrast to Judah, we have mentioned in verse 1 another place called Babylon. You know where Babylon originated? You get a hint in verse 2 when it talks about the land of Shinar. If you go back to Genesis chapter 11, you'll find that in the land of Shinar is where they built the Tower of Babel. Babel is Babylon. And why did they build the Tower of Babel? Essentially, it was built to be a stairway to heaven by which they would reach God and make a name for themselves. So Babel was the first place where organized false religion occurred. Babel or Babylon. It's also mentioned in Revelation chapter 17 as a place in the future where all organized false religion will consummate. So it started in Babylon, it will end in Babylon, and that's the place we read about here in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. It was a city that was the capital of the Babylonian Empire. It's set on the Euphrates River about 50 miles north of present-day Baghdad. Now, we're told in verse 1 also that the king of Babylon at this time was Nebuchadnezzar. In chapter 5 and verse 19 of Daniel, we read, All the peoples, nations, and men of every language feared and trembled before him. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared. What kind of king was he? He was a dictator who killed people whenever he wanted to. He was even worse than the king who reigns presently in that part of the world, Saddam Hussein. So Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. On this occasion, he comes up against Jerusalem. And what I don't want you to miss is the first phrase in verse 2. It says, And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, I'm sure that Nebuchadnezzar thought that he captured the city of Jerusalem. And probably in the Babylonian daily news, the headline read, Nebuchadnezzar conquers king of Judah. But that's not what really happened. What really happened is that God gave it into his hand. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2 and verse 37, as Daniel is interpreting Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he says this, You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. How did Nebuchadnezzar, this wicked, despotic king, come to the throne? Real simple. God gave it to him. Now, we're a little over a week from a presidential election, and a lot of people have worked hard to get their candidate elected. And when their candidate gets elected, they will say, We won. We did it. But you see, the truth is that they didn't do it. The truth is that God put that person in office. In fact, Daniel chapter 4 and verse 25 says at the end of that verse, the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, I don't understand how God does that. And I many times don't understand why God does that. But I know that God reigns in the halls of government today just as he did in the past and just as he will in the future. 
And so he raises up this king, Nebuchadnezzar, puts him on the throne, and now he brings him against Judah and delivers Judah over into his hand. You say, well, why would God use a wicked, corrupt country to chastise his own people? Well, if you want the answer to that, you have to read Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks that same question. And in Habakkuk 1.5, God says to his prophet Habakkuk, I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people. God was going to use Babylon, the Chaldeans, as his chastening rod against his people. God raised up the wicked Assyrians to take captive the northern kingdom. He raised up wicked Babylon to take captive the southern kingdom. And I might add that if he so chooses, he could use a similar nation today to come against America. And that's why as a nation, we need to get on our knees and repent. Sometimes we think, well, we're, we're one nation under God. There's no way God would use one, some of these wicked nations to defeat us. No? Read history. God used wicked Babylon and gave his own people into their hands because of their sin. You say, well, what had they done? Well, you only have to read Deuteronomy 28 to see God's provisions. God said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you do not obey me, I'll bring judgment. And we read what they did. They disobeyed God over and over again. They brought in idolatry into the nation. What's interesting is that after, after the captivity, they really had no problem with idolatry again because it was purged from them as a result of what God did here. But idolatry was prevalent in God's, among God's people. And not only that, but 2 Chronicles chapter 36 says that they disobeyed God in not keeping the Sabbath year. Every seventh year, they were to let the land lay dormant and rest. They didn't do that. And so they didn't do that for 490 years. And God came to them and said, you owe me 70 years. So he took them out of the land to Babylon for 70 years while the land caught up on its Sabbath day or Sabbath year. What's interesting to me is God never brings judgment without first giving warnings. And Judah had so many warnings. They had, number one, they had the warning of watching what happened to the northern kingdom. They watched as, as the northern kingdom. In fact, the first king of the northern kingdom was Jerob Jeroboam. You know what he did? He made two golden calves, put one in Dan and one in Bethel on each end of the kingdom and have everybody bow down to these golden calves. And God sent prophets to warn them, Amos and Hosea, but they wouldn't listen. And so the Assyrians came and took them into captivity. Those in the southern kingdom, those in Judah, watched as their brothers to the north were taken away. You think that they would get the message. Second warning came on the very presence of the Assyrians. When the Assyrians took the northern kingdom away, you know what they did next? They looked at the southern kingdom and said, why stop there? We'll go in and take the southern kingdom as well. And so they came in to do so. And you can read about it in 2 Chronicles chapter 32. At that point in time, God raised up a king, a godly king, by the name of Hezekiah. And he sent a prophet by the name of Isaiah. And 2 Chronicles chapter 32 says that Hezekiah and Isaiah prayed. And God sent one angel and killed 185,000 Assyrians. One day, there was an army out there. The next day, they were all dead. And you think the people of Judah would say, 
we better get right with God. But that's not what happened. Hezekiah died and his son's name was Manasseh. The Bible says Manasseh misled Judah to more evil than any of the nations around them. They were doing worse than the pagan nations around them in corruption. And because of that, God sent Assyria back to Judah. It says they wrapped Manasseh in chains and they put hooks in his nose and led him off into captivity. Now you would think the people of Judah would say, our king's gone and we've been living in sin. We better get right. But it didn't happen. In fact, Manasseh repented in the condition he was in. God brought him back. He walked with the Lord, and when he died, his son took over, and guess what? He went right back to the corruption that Manasseh had established before. So it's as if God chose a third way to warn them, and that is he tried to bring a revival. Manasseh had a grandson. His name was Josiah. Bible says he did right in the sight of the Lord for 31 years. He became king. In fact, it says that he took the idols and he broke them to pieces and he ground them to powder so nobody could put them back up again. What's interesting is that when Josiah died, the revival died. And Josiah's son took the throne. His name was Joahaz. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Bible says he only reigned for three months king of Egypt came up and took him down to Egypt. Again, you would think the people would get the warning. They didn't get it. Another of Josiah's sons named Jehoiakim took the throne and took up where his brother left off. That's the same guy we read here in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. But God had one other form of warning, and that is he sent his prophets. Prophets like Isaiah, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, all prophesied right before and during this time. And they were telling them, if you don't repent, God's going to take you away into captivity to Babylon. In fact, I want to show you one passage. Look at Jeremiah chapter 36. And I want you to turn there because I want you to mark it. I want you to read it in your own time. Jeremiah chapter 36, a fascinating chapter. God spoke to Jeremiah in verse 2, and he said, Jeremiah, I want to take you to take all your prophecies that you've been preaching, and I want you to write them down in a scroll. And the reason is given in verse 3. He says, Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way. Then I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I want you to write it down. They haven't listened to it when you've preached it, but I want you to write it down, and maybe then they'll see it and they'll respond to it. Now, what is the calamity that he was talking about? When When you come down to verse 29, you find out that the calamity is that the king of Babylon was going to come and take them captive and remove them from the land. So he says to Jeremiah, I want you to write it down so that they can read it. Maybe, just maybe, when they read it, they'll repent. And if they repent, God says, I'll forgive them. And as we learn in Jonah, I'll change my mind. So it's like he's given them one last opportunity. Now the king at this time is the same king we read in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. It's Jehoiakim. When he found out about the scroll, he wanted to hear it. So verse 22 tells us he was in his winter house with his feet up by the fire eating hot chocolate. And verse 23 says, And it came about when Jedediah Jedediah had read three or four columns 
the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire until all the scroll was consumed. And I hope that's shocking to you because that, that's the word of God. Bring in the word of God. It's read to him. He hears it, just a little of it. And he takes his scribe's knife out and he carves it up and he throws it in the fire. I guess that shouldn't shock us any more than what the critics today do with the Word of God. What do they do? They take out their scribe knife and they cut out the parts they don't want and they throw it into the fire. And so as a result of this, verse 30 tells us, God essentially says through His prophet to Jehoiakim, to paraphrase it, you're dead meat. Babylon's coming and it's going to happen. And so if you come over to Daniel chapter 1, that's the introduction to this chapter. Who's on the throne? Jehoiakim. Who comes? Nebuchadnezzar. Now, the captivity actually takes place in three phases. The first phase happens in 605 B.C. It's the one described here in Daniel chapter 1 where a group of young men are taken to Babylon. The second phase happens eight years later when a larger number are taken into captivity along with Ezekiel. The final phase happens 11 years after that when Nebuchadnezzar comes and literally destroys Jerusalem and burns down the temple. So the, the first phase is what we're dealing with here. Actually, historians tell us that Nebuchadnezzar came on this first occasion and he didn't really finish the job because he heard that his elderly father, who was very sick, was dying back in Babylon. And so he had to head back early, but to confirm what he had done, what he did was he left Jehoiakim on the throne, but as it says in verse 2, he took the vessels out of the house of God and took them back and put them in the treasury of his God, a statement that my God is greater than your God. And then to make sure that Jehoiakim didn't rebel, he also took some hostages, and that's what we read in verse 3. It says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. Nebuchadnezzar has Aspenaz, the chief of his officials, bring some of the sons of Israel. Now, now we're not told how many there are. Uh, historians tell us uh, 75. I don't know where they get that figure from, but, but we'll go with that figure. We'll say it's about 75 that they took. Now, they took these youths for two reasons. Number one, to be hostages. And if you'll notice verse 3, they selected carefully. They wanted some from the royal families and the nobles. They wanted some of the leaders' kids so that they would have leverage in controlling what went on in Judah. But I think there's a second reason, and of course it's spelled out for us in this chapter, and that is he wanted them to serve in the king's court. He has Aspenaz select them. He is the chief of the officials because his purpose is he wants these young men to serve in his court. Now, your Bible may say here that he is the chief of the eunuchs. That's actually the word used here. It's a word that means to castrate. And so, some have suggested that these young men were, were surgically turned into eunuchs at this point in time. The passage doesn't tell us that. And apparently that term, eunuch, had been broadened to include anybody who was an official under the king because in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 1, we're told that Potiphar was a eunuch under Pharaoh, and of course we know that he was married. So I think we can broaden this term. Some have argued that Daniel was a surgical eunuch. The Bible doesn't tell us that. We do know, or at least from silence, we conclude that he did not marry and did not have children. 
but there's no reason for us to assume that he was surgically castrated. These young men were taken. Now, what I want you to see in verse 4 is the criteria for this choice. Verse 4 says, Youths, in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. They are youths, probably 13 to 17 years old. They were mature enough to leave home, but young enough to be re-educated. And 70 years later, we know that Daniel's still ministering, so Daniel would probably be on the younger end of that, probably about 14 years old. Now, the criteria given in this verse is threefold. Number one is physical. He says they're to have no defect, no physical handicap. Number two, they're to be good-looking. They're to have physical attractiveness. Now, isn't that typical for the world? How are you going to pick these guys? We want them to be physically attractive with no defects. When Israel went to pick their first king, who did they pick? Saul. Why? He was tall, dark, and handsome. Inside, he was a loser. First criteria was physical. Second criteria was mental. It says showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge. They had to have an, a high IQ. They had, had to have a 4.0 grade point average. And the third area was social, he says, who had ability for serving in the king's court. Literally, that means who had the ability to stand in the king's court. They had to be people who would fit into that environment socially. I would never make it because whenever I'm invited to a formal banquet, I can never figure out even which fork I'm supposed to be using. And these guys had to be able to fit into that culture and understand it. And so there's the criteria. Physical, mental, social. The only three areas that the world can judge. You don't read anything about character, spiritual qualities, virtue, morality. He just says, get me the best-looking, smartest, most suave young men, and I'll melt them into Chaldeans. And that's what it says at the end of the verse. We will teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The International Bible Encyclopedia says the Chaldeans were educated in astronomy, astrology, mathematics, natural history, sciences, magic, sorcery, and one of their strongest areas was architecture, which makes sense. They began by building the Tower of Babel. They were notorious for the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But what I want you to understand here is the king's intention was not just to educate these young men. He wanted to brainwash them. He wanted them to look like Jews on the outside, but be Babylonian on the inside. That's not a whole lot different than what universities sometimes do to young Christians today. They still look like Christians on the outside, but inside they're thinking like humanists. Not a whole lot different than what many seminaries in our country are doing to young men as well. They come out looking like preachers, but inside, they're thinking like humanists. Nebuchadnezzar understood the battle for the minds of the young. And to aid that process, notice what he does in verse 5. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. 
They got to eat the king's food. Choice food and wine. And I stayed in the dorm for a while, and choice was not the word for what I ate. He brings these fellows in. He says, you're going to get to eat what comes right off the king's table. Now, why does he do that? Well, I think he does it for two reasons. Number one, he wanted them to get accustomed to the good life. You ever eat in a nice restaurant for about $50 a meal? And you say to yourself, you know, I could get used to this. He wants these young men to come out of Israel, come there and start eating all this great food and then say, there's no way I'm going back to Israel. But I think there's a second reason here, and that is he wants them to feel obligated to him. That's part of the brainwashing. The king's given us the best. We really owe him something. And if there were 75 youths, apparently it worked with about 71 of them. And we read the exceptions in verse 6. It says, Now among them were the sons of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There aren't very many people who don't fall for the world's brainwashing. There aren't very many people who don't dance to the world's jig. And here are four of them, named in verse 6. And notice what he does with them in verse 7, along with the others. It says, Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them, and to Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah Shadrach, to Mishael Meshach, and to Azariah Abednego. Now, you're more familiar with those guys. Uh, my grandpa used to say they were Shadrach, Meshach, and to bed we go. He changes their names to Chaldean names, which again is part of the brainwashing because he wants them to forget their roots, forget their heritage, forget their family. You've got a new identity. And so he takes Daniel, whose name means God is judge, and he makes him Belteshazzar. Bel was their main god, and so that word means Bel's prince. In fact, in chapter 4 and verse 8, Nebuchadnezzar says that he named Daniel after his God. Hananiah means Jehovah is gracious. It's changed to Shadrach, which means in command of Aku, the moon god. Mishael means one who is like God, great name. They changed it to Meshach, which means one who is like Aku, the moon god. And Azariah means the Lord helps. They changed his name to Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, the son of Bel. So they take away their godly names and they replace them with pagan deities. And what I want to do this morning in closing is just look at the first part of verse 8 because it really introduces the rest of this chapter and tells us what kind of person Daniel was. It says, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. Now remember, this guy's 14 years old. It says, literally, he purposed in his heart that he was not going to take the king's food or wine. Now, they were told to do three things. They really were indoctrinated with heathen wisdom, heathen names, and heathen food. What's interesting is he accepted the first two. He accepted the heathen education. He knew that he could decipher what was good and bad and keep only what was good. He accepted the heathen names. In essence, he was saying, you can change my name, but you can't change my identity. My name is still recorded in God's book. But where he drew the line was on this last area on what he would eat. You say, 
well, what's the big deal? I mean, why would he say yes to the education and no to the food? Well, the reason is because in Scripture, there's no strict prohibition against taking a heathen name. And there's no strict prohibition against learning from other people. Moses did that. Joseph did that. But there were very strict prohibitions about what a Jew could eat and drink. And so essentially, you see, Daniel is drawing the line where Scripture drew the line. Two reasons why he couldn't eat this food. Number one was it wasn't kosher. It had to be prepared in a certain way. The blood had to be drained in a certain way. There were clean foods and animals, and there were unclean animals. And I'm sure probably one of the most popular meals there was pork roast. Against the law. So Daniel says, I can't do that. I purpose in my heart not to do that. Second reason was because these animals had been first sacrificed to the idol's in Babylon, then cooked, then served to the king. So for Daniel to eat that would be actually him participating in a pagan feast. And so he draws the line. Now I want you to think this morning about some of the things that Daniel could have come up with for excuses not to do what he did here. I mean, he could have said, wait a minute, I'm just a kid. I mean, what kind of character do you expect from a 14-year-old? A Daniel could have said, everybody else is doing it. I see all these young guys from Judah, and they're eating pork chops. Why should Daniel and his three friends be different? Or Daniel could have thought, well, you know, my parents are a long way away. They're 900 miles away. He had no parents to answer to. His mom was not going to come around the corner with a coat hanger in her hand. He was on his own. He could have said, well, you know, I'm a POW. I don't have any control over what I eat. Or he could have said, you know, Lord, I know this isn't exactly right, and, and I probably shouldn't do it, but I really want to get high up in the kingdom, and when I get there... I'll let you use my position to bring honor to you. Now, doesn't, that, doesn't that sound spiritual? God, if I get high enough and get, get up there enough, the end justifies the means, but if I get there, then I'll serve you when I get there. Or he could have said, you know, this guy, Nebuchadnezzar, is no milk toast king. And this guy is known for throwing people into the fiery furnace. I don't want to mess with him. Or, you know, he could have said... God let me down. But here I am. I've been taken 900 miles away. Where was God? God let me down. Why do I owe God anything? See, Daniel had every reason to compromise. But he didn't. Because he had real character. He had real integrity. Daniel didn't make a fuss when they said he had to go to Babylon University. He said, I'll learn the language, I'll learn the sciences. He didn't even make a fuss when they changed his name. But he said, I will never accept their lifestyle. What an example. Daniel didn't obey God when he felt like it. He didn't just obey God when it was convenient. He was committed. He purposed in his heart 
from day one in Babylon and be God's man. And God blessed him in some, some extraordinary ways that we're going to begin to see next week. But let me just ask you in closing, what's your Babylon? Is it school? Is it work? Maybe for some of you it's your family. Maybe it's your friends. Wherever it seems that you're trying to be squeezed into the mold of the world, that's Babylon. Let me suggest to you today, if you haven't already, to purpose in your heart to draw the line where God draws the line. Let me challenge you today to be like Daniel, a committed believer who, when it came to the clear statements of God, said, no compromise.